1: Students, the New York Times best-selling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers. And this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt, one word at a time.
0: And Taylor, you kind of teased this week's show from last week's show. So in, in this week, we're going to go into some detail about some of the stuff that we went into last last week. Essentially, we're going to answer the question of how going deeper than the obvious makes a character feel real and alive but I have a question for you, and my favorite kind of chit chats where I can just spring things on you. So, oh boy. <laughs> here's a question that you're totally unprepared for, and I'm, I'm really curious about the answer. You expressed some trepidation about reading your own work last week, and it, you said, this is something that I never do. I never read it out loud. So you obviously don't go to bookstores and, and read from your book. Why? Because everyone does that
1: everyone does that
0: lots of people do
1: (laughs) i just i i cringe when i hear my own words read back to me it is there's a funny picture you can find it i think it's on my facebook page or i don't know it's either my profile or my page or the fan club group and it was taken from the audience perspective at murder by the book in houston and i had done a co-author event with Vicki Pedersen, who I adore, and I, I consider her a very good friend, but she also writes fantastic uh, urban fantasy thriller-type stories, so if you haven't read her, check her out. She hasn't written anything for a long time. She's gone through her own uh, publishing travails, just as I have. Uh, it's not exactly the same, but, you know, this is a really hard industry, and she burned out, too, for a while. I think she's she's getting back into it now, which I'm really happy about, but anyway we're there at the front of the audience and she decided she picked up my book and said she was going to read from it. And I plugged my ears and went la 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 the whole time. And she didn't read from it. From what I understand, she said something like Vicki Petterson is so much better of an author than Taylor <laughs> Stevens <laughs> or something along those lines. But that gives you an example how just almost like panic and paranoid I am to hear like it, 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 it physically upsets me to hear my own words read back to me i've never listened to any of my audio uh i tried i got like one sentence into (laughs) hillary huber's gravelly voice and i turned it off i just couldn't and she's a fantastic narrator that has nothing to do with her i just i just couldn't do it so this is a really really big deal for me to read my own work and i consider it a sacrifice and a labor of love for the cause (laughs) So this is another scene taken from The Informationist. And as Steve uh, mentioned earlier, my goal here is to use this scene to show how going deeper than the obvious can make characters feel real and alive. So first, the little disclaimers and all that kind of stuff. As I mentioned prior, I'm reading my work for the first time. I am book club blogging my thoughts if you've enjoyed These types of things, you can get the non-writer aspects or where I just sort of word vomit in the posts themselves. There's a lot of stuff in there that's not here. Like, oh, I love this scene and I love it for this reason or whatever. And, oh, I'm cringing over this or whatever. All that word vomit. It's all there. The posts are free, but for privacy reasons, I have them behind the Patreon wall, wall, the paywall. So they're free, but you just need a Patreon account to be able to access them um it takes about a minute to set up a patreon account you don't have to put in a credit card you don't have to pledge but it does let you get notified whenever i put any free posts up there it's just a way to be more connected especially if you like to know what's going on with me personally i put stuff up there that i don't even put in the facebook group i feel like my patrons should get everything first um so yeah that's there and as i mentioned before also it is very impossible for me to read my own work without being critical over it and it can be a little hard for some fans to hear me criticize work that they love so much they love me they love my work and it's not fun when somebody you love is hard on themselves or hard on the characters so you just have to know that i am coming from this at a total place of okayness i'm like I can't grow if I don't acknowledge what could be improved. So this is not a condemnation or being critical of myself so much as acknowledging how much I've grown in these years. But it, by because I've grown so much in these years, it allows me to see both the good and the bad. Um, I, obviously, the flaws are going to jump out at me, but it also makes me very happy or like, oh my God, look at what I was able to do. And I didn't know what I was doing. Um, So admittedly, there's a lot that I could have done differently if I'd had the skill back then, but the critical eye lets me spot places where my fledgling self did especially well and with the tools at hand and some of them make for really good examples. So that's what I'm going to to use again here, because in some ways, these uh, examples of what I would consider rougher work uh, are better than using my current work, because it's a lot easier to separate the story elements from the writing itself. So with today's example, I wanted to take the concept of character development and plot character development in a plot-driven novel a bit further than we did last time. And this particular segment is a really good show and tell of how As we've already said three times now, going deeper than the obvious is a fantastic tool for making characters feel real and alive and using very few words. Because when you're writing a thriller, as previously mentioned, you just don't have a lot of room for character development. And if you're under this word count limit and you have have to choose between cutting character or cutting plot, character is usually the thing to go. So when you can find a way to get that character development in economically, with without adding a lot of wordage or introspection or anything like that, that's a really handy tool to have in your craft chest. So this is a roughly 400-word segment. And if you have a copy of the book, it takes place in Chapter 15. Uh, if you haven't read the book, again, my apologies. There's spoilers, and there's no way to get around that. This particular scene takes place after the one that uh, we worked with last week in show 224, I think it was, episode 224. And in this small scene, Monroe has just learned that Miles Bradford, who is the partner-slash-babysitter she's been opposed to from the beginning and who she now distrusts immensely due to him having left the country right after she was kidnapped and thrown in the ocean— and whom she's explicitly told, don't come back because she doesn't need or want his help, uh, is now rejoining her. And he's going to be reprising his partner-slash-babysitter role, and if she wants to keep getting paid, she has no option but
0: to accept him. And for those who wish to read along with Taylor, we're on page 211, about halfway down the page on the hardcover version.
1: Okay, so about 400 words. Here we go. Monroe replaced the phone, stood still for a moment, and then with clenched teeth slammed the palm of her hand into the wall and kicked the chair closest to her. Bayard, who had been standing on the other side of the room, said, whatever the problem, surely it is not the wall and the chair that are to blame. Better the furniture than a person. She sighed and sat in the chair, looking up at Bayard. We have a problem, she said, or a wrinkle, or whatever the fuck we want to call him. Him? Him? Miles Bradford, my partner, partner from Malabo. I'm sure you know who I'm talking about. He's flying to Duala in two weeks time and either I kill him as a matter of prevention or he's coming with us to Mongomo. Bayard sat in the chair opposite and after a moment of silence said, "Essa, there's something you're not telling me. This man who was your partner, he is already familiar with the scenario and if my sources were accurate, you've worked well together. Logically, he would be an asset to this assignment. There are two things, Francesco. She drew herself up so that she looked him directly in the face. First, I don't know if I can trust him. That he was left while I was hauled off to be murdered and dumped overboard doesn't sit easy with me, but I can work with it. What angers me most can't be explained by logic. She paused. I simply don't want him here. She motioned toward the navigational controls. "'I don't want to share this with him. "'Don't want to share you with him. "'This this is part of me that's sacred. "'It's my own. "'I don't want it tarnished by an intruder "'who already knows everything else about me "'that there is to know. "'This is mine.' Bayard nodded and then stood. "'In your words, you of all people should know better "'than to make tactical decisions based on emotion. "'I don't want an intruder any more than you do,' he said, "'but if the plan comes first. "'If he's a risk to the enterprise, we can remove him, "'but I think we would want to be very cautious in that regard.' He held his hand to her, she reached for it, and he pulled her to her feet. So the analysis. From a plotting perspective, we need Miles Bradford to be with Monroe when she returns to the mainland. But this doesn't require any special handling, because the groundwork for it has already been effectively laid since Monroe first took the assignment, and we've already established that. And this is assuming that we can trust Miles Bradford's word, that he's a reliable narrator. He has personal reasons for insisting on coming back to work with her. So plot-wise, there's really not much that needs to be done to ensure Bradford's return to Cameroon feels authentic and not contrived, unlike last week's episode where we needed to answer these questions of why. The whys here have already been laid out. In a parallel vein, the plot itself is completely indifferent to how Monroe feels about his return. So her reaction to it is irrelevant in terms of the plot itself. So logically, emotionally, we'd expect her to protest, to be unhappy. Um, It's already been firmly established from the beginning that she works alone she resents being saddled with a babysitter. This stuff is all very, um, it's there. There's no question about it. She's been vocal about it from the beginning. So those factors alone would be enough for us to expect her to react poorly and have this type of reaction. And that would carry the scene. We don't need anything extra to make it work. The only problem is with that is that with a lot of writing that's where the characterization is going to tend to stop and so as a result this lone wolf type that doesn't need or want someone else help doesn't work with a partner and then has a partner forced on them it's so common that it's almost cliche so it doesn't almost doesn't even matter that the situation in isolation makes perfect sense because it's done this way so often that it's still going to feel like we've seen it a hundred times before. And that has nothing to do with the actual story. It has to do with these types of stories as a whole. So in this particular instance, what pulls us out of that particular trap is that Bradford's has this highly questionable role in the night she was almost killed. So that specifically, it gives her very strong reasons not to trust him or want him anywhere near her. And now she has all the help she needs from someone else anyway. So that takes it a little bit beyond the standard lone wolf, I work alone, I don't want you, I don't need you, get out of my life type thing that we see very often in these types of stories. And it gives it its own unique contained within the story flavor to it that kind of pulls us a step back from we see this all the time, right? So we really could stop there. And this scene and everything that follows would make complete non-contrived sense and we could move on. But what pushes this scene from that works just fine into true into true character building is where it goes beyond the obvious reasons why Monroe wouldn't want Bradford around. And it goes into the deeper subconscious personal reasons. So all the things that we stated up above, you know, about it's been laid out that she doesn't want him, she works alone, she doesn't want him to be a babysitter, that, um, that he's, she feels like she can't trust him, that he plays this dubious role in, in what happened when she got uh, disappeared— that's all very obvious it's there on the page right but what's not obvious and what takes us deeper is this what angers me most can't be explained by logic she paused i simply don't want him here she motioned toward the navigational controls i don't want to share this with him don't want to share you with him this this is a part of me that's sacred my own i don't want it tarnished by an intruder who already knows everything else about me that there is to know this is mine she is incredibly possessive about her past not because she doesn't want people to know like it's some secret but because it's the only thing she has that other people haven't been able to go digging into to find out all about her right that's 72 words and it gives us this enormous insight into her character core. It's it's a certain kind of depth and meaning, and it, it feels like raw and real because it's not obvious. It's not out there on the page. We have to actually understand who she is. And it's it's not the type of thing that someone would be proud of to be possessive and jealous of another person when they are this supposedly shut off and in control of their emotions all the time person this character right so the scene would have worked perfectly fine without adding that extra bit but by going deeper we go beyond the obvious we we're we're taking into something we've taken basically like we've taken something that's expected all the whole lone wolf thing all the you know well obviously she'd be upset because of this sort of antagonistic role uh, relationship that they have we take that expected and it's spun and it's given its own uniqueness. And then later, when Monroe does finally meet Bradford again, and she, she's really mean to him, I mean, she's brutal. She tells him he fucked up by coming back. She drugs him, puts him under. I mean, it's, it's it, She's not nice. But we know at that point, it's not just because she doesn't trust him. It's not just because he didn't do what she said. It's because she's angry and vengeful that she feels he's stolen this thing from her and we feel that and it feels personal in a way that most lone wolf type stories just aren't. It's not just a strong, silent, being a dick for the sake of, you know, principle. She's got actual conflicting emotions about this whole thing. So that got me thinking, right? How different this is from the typical way that the lone wolf is presented And I'm like, well, most of these lone wolf stories are male. So would this technique of going deeper than the obvious work with a male character? Or is this something that's specifically female? I've never thought about it before. I don't know. Um, I think that it would have worked just as well if Monroe had been a male character. But I'm not sure. I, I don't have the answer to that. I need to mull it over for however long, I don't know. I mean, obviously we'd have to tweak the language of it and everything to fit the nature of the character Monroe would be as a male because if she was a male, she'd be a very different character than as a female. So it's not like you can just copy and paste the identical language and have it work regardless. But I... I really, really think that this underlying concept of going beyond the obvious practical reasons why a character would or wouldn't want to do something, and especially if that something, quote-unquote, is going to carry a lot of plot weight, by providing these deeper emotions driving the actions, it's going to get you a lot of characterization mileage with very few words. And then there's the added bonus that when you probe these emotional depths, you are also at the same time removing any lingering sense of contrivance or convenience. So like not all readers are going to experience the same the same story the same way. We all bring ourselves to it uh, with our own emotional baggage, our own life experience. And it's just it's, it's a unique. Every reading experience is a unique experience between you, the characters and the author. It's, it's just the way it is. So there are always going to be some readers who don't buy into something. When you go deeper and you plumb those emotional depths, you are giving characters a level of motivation that is really hard to argue against because it is real and it is personal to them. And even if the reader's not going to feel that same way themselves, they can understand why the character would feel that way. Because if it can feel, like if we had stopped with, um, you know, Bradford, her not trusting Bradford and hadn't gone deeper than that, it can feel like that mistrust is kind of just par for the course. I mean, it's something that you're going to see over and over in Thrillers, and it can start to feel like you're following a formula or a script. But when you go deeper into the character and you take it beyond the obvious, then what you're doing is moving away from the cliche and you're giving what could be seen as formula a very unique life of its own, and that basically means that you're, you, some of these thrillers, and I mean no disrespect to any writer whatsoever, but I'm sure everyone here knows what I'm talking about, where it's a story that it, it follows these patterns well enough that you could essentially, with a few tweaks and description changes, swap out a hero from a different series into that one, and it would still work. So when you go deeper... And you're providing more than the obvious, and you're really like getting into the character's psyche with these types of little glimpses. You take what could be a an ex- inter interchangeable type story, and you turn it into something unique and special to that character, which could only be that character in that particular story. Like with last week, I, I kind of feel like I'm falling short in explaining the concept and concepts, but this is really the Best I can do at articulating it. And I think, and this is where we go back to answering Steve's unasked question from last week. It's really important to mention that when I wrote this scene, I had no idea that this is what I was doing. Like, I can see it now in retrospect, and that's where I'm like, wow, I I didn't know that I knew how to do that back then. And I didn't know what I was doing, but I still somehow got it onto the page and i think the reason we got these beyond the obvious glimpses is however unintentional they were is because i came to the whole writing process backwards like i didn't know my character i didn't have a plot i was discovering both of them as i went so there are a lot of authors who who write that is their process they they write organically but in their case, they typically at least have an idea of what they're going to write about. They have an idea of sort of the basics of their character, even if they don't have, they don't know everything there is to know about the character. They know that they're working with a woman, for example, or they know that they're working with, you know, an FBI agent or whatever. And in my case, I knew I was working with a country, and I had to, to <laughs> just kind of conjure the whole rest of it up, you know. And I was just really making it up as I went along. So every time it got to, uh, you know where the story was going to go next or the plot needed to progress to the next step. I was figuring it out as I was figuring out my characters. So I had to each step of the way, look at it through those characters eyes. Wait, why are they doing this? How do they really feel about it? What's going on with them? And those character aspects became the foundation for moving on to the next plot point. And that was way more obvious. That that part of it was way more obvious in last week's episode where we had that conversation where what could have been a non-player character type figure in the story, wooden whatever, um, became the, an antagonist the plot itself, and that became a foundation for using all the emotional responses to drive the story forward. So this was sort of a continuation off of that, and that the story is still move, being driven forward, but as I'm writing it, I'm asking myself, well, why? What, what do they feel? Why? What's the real reason she doesn't want him there? And it, and it just it it adds a layer of depth to it that takes this from being a quote unquote typical thriller or whatever into something that's what I've come to describe as high octane character studies, right? And if you can if you can do that, go deeper, go beyond the obvious, often to do that, you've got to figure it out. I, I think sometimes, especially if you're under a lot of pressure to write quickly, you don't have the time or the space to figure your characters out to that level. But if you can, you're gonna add a layer of depth to the story very economically um, that can take what is otherwise a chase rush type scene, and give it that characterization and that emotional depth.
0: Okay, so I have a comment and the question. Okay. The comment is, as a reader, this is the kind of thing that, I mean, you, you put it very well, but from a reader perspective, this is the kind of thing that binds you to a character to where you just want to read the next book and read more about this character. As opposed to, yeah, that was a good story, and now I'm going to go read another story. Yes. So now the question is, how often, because it seems like there's got to be a fine line when you're writing at the pace, the stories at the pace that you write, and I don't mean the pace of writing, but the pace that you have to keep up in the stories in your thrillers, how often- You mean
1: like the the pacing?
0: The pacing, yes. Okay. How, How often can you get away with the extra 72 word character study?
1: I think you do you I mean if you if you do it too often then you you've moved away from plot and into character right mm-hmm. but I think when you have key decisions key character interactions where we we've talked about this before where when you're writing a plot driven story it absolutely is plot that's driving the story but the trick as a writer is to make it look like character is driving the story, and so any when you get to those key points where um, the characters are making decisions that are going to affect the plot, or the characters are you can look at them as like nodes, or where like in, a, in a, a 3D map the new or a 3D brain map the neurons would connect. You know those those points. When you get those points where it could branch off in different directions and readers are going to be asking themselves, well, why didn't they do this instead? Or you should be asking yourself that before the reader does. Why didn't they do this instead? Instead of giving really basic answers, um, which when sometimes basic answers are, you know, totally plot logic is, is the way to go. Um, but if they're if, it, if it will benefit from having deeper and going beyond the obvious uh, information provided, then you do that, and you, so it's at the junctions, at the junctions where this decision could go in five different ways, and it needs to look like this is the only real way that character ever would have responded. And you want to eliminate any doubt or any uh, "yeah, right" rule eyes from the from your audience. That's the moment to do it.
0: Okay, all right, it's. It, it's challenging sometimes, to, and I'll ask these questions. And it's like I'm trying to turn a creative process into a mathematical formula, but to a certain extent, that's what the hack the craft stuff is.
1: Yes. But it's like you can't turn it into a formula. Some of it you can, like, you know, if this, then that stuff that Mm -hmm. we talk about, that's all very writing specific, like it's craft, of the actual words that are being used on the page. But story, and this is story that we're talking about here, that is an art. It's not, it's it's as much art as it is craft. And some people have a real innate instinct for it and others don't. If if I, if I if I have a superpower, if I have any anything that I have been gifted with and maybe this was just life making up for all the opportunities that were stolen from me throughout my childhood, I was born with an innate sense of story. I cannot take credit for that, that I understand how story fits together. I understand on an instinctual level how to make it real. So obviously, but I can't do math. So obviously there are going to be people out there who are just like world-class, amazing mathematicians who may really want to write creatively as an outlet, but they just don't have that innate story sense. It doesn't mean that there's something wrong with them. It just means they, they weren't naturally provided that uh, ability to see it in the head the way they could, for example, math. So what do you do if you're someone who doesn't have an innate sense of story? Can you learn story? Can you can you be taught story? That is a discussion we should probably have on a different episode because it's going to go everywhere and all over the place, and I don't know that there's necessarily a single answer to it. But what these types of episodes do... are are intended to do is to give those who struggle with story who don't understand it on an innate level actual examples to work with to see visually what it is we're talking about when we say go deeper or what we're talking about when we say let emotion and character conflict be the foundation for driving your plot you can see it with your eyes can you do a Apples to apples transfer over so that you can follow that exact same pattern in your own work? Probably not. It's really, really hard to do. But when you start seeing these examples over and over again, it starts to click and it becomes a little bit easier to understand how to make things work and how to get the story to fit together in a way that gives it um, a, a deeper richness than what you... where where you're finding those holes. So you find a way to get that deepness and richness into the places that you feel is just not working.
0: All right. So I think that we have captured the essence of what you're talking about. And this is a great, like, uh, two-episode series. I really, I've really enjoyed it
1: there might be more. (laughs) (laughs) uh, When I when I started reading, um, doing this book club thing with with the information is the the posts that I'm putting up are very spaced out. And because I don't ever know, like when I'm going to have time to read. And what I'm finding out is it's not that I can't find the time to read. It's finding the time to write the posts that go with it. So I have a post I haven't put it up yet. Well, actually, by the time this podcast releases, I'll have already put it up. But Um, I I had read the chapters three times, because I'd read them and go, okay, great, I'm going to write the post, and then four days have passed, and then I forgot what it was I <laughs> wanted to say. So by the third time, I actually sat down with a notepad and started jotting down notes as I went. So I actually had something to work with when it came time to write the post. And I'm like, why was I not doing that from the beginning? And it was because I had started jotting down those notes that we actually had this material I didn't forget. And I had the material to do these shows. So now, hopefully, fingers crossed, as I continue forward, I'm going to keep jotting down notes, and maybe we'll have more
0: shows like these with more examples who knows fingers crossed yes (laughs) all right thanks everybody for listening we will be back in your ear again next tuesday
1: thanks for being here see you next week